Good morning. Thanks for coming in on this sloppy Sunday morning. Um, I wanted to announce that worship will begin at 1.30 this afternoon because I've got a lot of material. <laughs> no. Strap in. Let's open with prayer this morning. Lord God, we thank you for this brief time as we prepare for worship, as we look forward to worship, to set our minds on examples of the past and our fathers and mothers who've come before. Lord God, teach us from their lives how to follow you. Teach us from their successes and their failures. Lord, bless us, bless us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be talking about Abigail Adams this morning. I have, I've subtitled this lesson, Daughter of Puritans, Mother of Yankees. And I'll explain why here in just a minute. Who is Abigail Adams? What do we know about Abigail Adams? What's she known for in American history? She was the wife of John Adams. And she was the mother of John Quincy Adams. So wife, wife of the second president, mother of the sixth president. There's only one other woman in American history who's had the distinction of being married to a president and mother of a president. Who was the other one? Barbara Bush, that's right. She, I'd like to, let me open this quote from her. She wrote, I am more and more convinced that man is a dangerous creature and that power, whether vested in many or a few, is ever grasping. And like the grave, cries, give, give. The great fish swallow up the small, and he who is most strenuous for the rights of the people, when vested with power, is as eager after the prerogatives of government. You tell me of degrees of perfection to which human nature is capable of arriving. And I believe it but at the same time lament that our admiration should arise from the scarcity of the instances. So she, had, so, um, she was born Abigail Smith in November 22nd, 1744. She was the daughter of William Smith, a congregational minister in Massachusetts, and Elizabeth Quincy. Elizabeth Quin the Quincy family, was, were, uh, they were a big deal. They were a big deal in, um, in Massachusetts, particularly politically. Um, her father was pastor of First Congregational Church in Boston, and she was the great-granddaughter of John, of John Norton, who was founding pastor of uh, Puritan Old Ship Church in Massachusetts. She had no formal education as a girl, but was taught by her mother and was a voracious reader all her life. Today she's known, so she was the second first lady. She was the first second lady and the second first lady the United States ever had. Uh, although those titles are not used then. To, even to this day, she's known as one of the most articulate uh, and well-educated First Ladies, in, in spite of basically teaching herself much of her life. She was 17 when she first met the young John Adams, who was an aspiring but struggling lawyer in Massachusetts at the time. Uh, John was pretty listless and dissatisfied with himself. He was a Harvard grad. His father had sold a piece of land uh, so that he could go to Harvard. He'd done well in his studies and enjoyed it, um, but he was still searching for what he was called to do when he met uh, his future wife. They were married two years later in 1764. Um, over the course of their life, they, the couple would have six children. Uh, one was stillborn, and then one, their daughter, Susanna, died at age two. It was very, very hard, very, very hard on the couple. Um, and then their other children are... Uh, other children, um, the Adams became something of a dynasty in American history. There's a lot we could talk about with the Adams family. But we're going to leave that. The most obvious thing being their son, John Quincy Adams, who was prominent in the early, early constitutional government and later president. 
1774, John Adams left for the first Continental Congress in Philadelphia. And this began, the, this began John and Abigail's lifelong correspondence for which they are so famous today. Um, the letters reflect not only Abigail's reactive advice to the political conventions and questions that John posed to her, but also her own observant reporting of New England newspapers and her, and her fellow citizens' response to legislation and news events of the American Revolution, which, much of which basically went on in her front yard. Um, so they, the two of them wrote letters basically from 1774 through about uh, 1800, uh, when they became the first couple to move into the White House in Washington, D.C. Um, they, they lived in the presidential mansion in Philadelphia for the first eh, about three years, and then for the last 18 months or so, uh, actually moved into the White House. In 1784, uh, Abigail, the, uh, their separation was ended for a time, and Abigail was able to join her husband with her daughter and John Quincy and her son John Quincy in Paris, where he was a minister to the to the French government. Um, she enjoyed the theater, the opera in Paris. She uh, she was fascinated by French fashions, but as first lady later worked to worked against their spread here in the states, believing that they were indecorous. She was also she and John were also received by King George III in London, at Buckingham Palace in 1785, and that is a conversation I would love to have been a fly on the wall for, as the saying goes. It's hard to imagine George III and John Adams in the same room. Um, Abigail was extreme was was very like most Americans. Abigail was very struck by the pomp of the British monarchy. During her time in Philadelphia as First Lady, she kept she received visitors very formally. Patterned some of her some of her receptions after what she'd observed in Buckingham Palace, and uh, she can and she was known. She was often called derisively during her um, husband's time as president. As she was often derisively referred to as Mrs. President because of her outspoken opinions and her well-known collaboration with her husband. All things, all things in the government. Her husband lost the lost a chance at a second term to Thomas Jefferson. That's a very interesting period um, that I wish we had more time to talk about, the friendship between Abigail, John, and Thomas Jefferson. You'd be hard-pressed to find three more different people in the early United States. And their friendship went under, underwent a severe test um, during, the, uh, during uh, Jefferson's campaign for president, because then, as now, American politics is a blood sport. And it was a rough time. They, their friendship fell off. However, during Abigail's time in London, she actually, um, she actually took took uh, Jefferson's young daughter Polly into her home as a young girl, and raised her for several years. And then, several, and then, sometime after the Jefferson presidency, Polly died prematurely. And it was at that point that Abigail reached out to Jefferson, sending her condolences for his loss and her own, and actually ended up restarting the friendship between the Adamses and the Jeffersons after that time. Let's see here. Through it all, Abigail spent a lot of time running the Adams home in Braintree and later Quincy, Massachusetts. Uh, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about that just a little bit here in just a minute, but she was John, John Adams was a bit unique amongst the founding fathers, many of whom ended their lives um, penniless or heavily indebted, 
um, and generally in poor financial condition. That was not the case for the Adams. And there's at least one historian I read who credits a lot of that to Abigail's wise management at home while John was continually out with two Continental Congresses, writing the deck, helping into helping to bring through the Declaration of Independence, working in the war ministry under the uh, under the Articles of Confederation, you know, generally help, you know, generally engage in the American War for Independence. She was running that back at home. She was viewing the war on her front doorstep, caring for its victims as much as she possibly could. She and John Quincy, who is, if I remember correctly, about seven, stood on Penn Hill outside of their Braintree residence and watched the British siege of Boston and then watched the British ships leave when the siege was broken. Uh, I'm going to read, if I have time, I'm going to read a section for where she actually toured a, uh, an American naval vessel that uh, docked outside of their home in Massachusetts as well. So she had a front row seat. And then she died on October 28, 1818, at age 73. So much for a historical overview. At this point, I have to give the caveat that your fellow, my fellow elders have given before theirs. I'm not going to do this lady justice in the 45 minutes that we have. So, as a matter of fact, I'm going to start a tradition. This is basically just, basically, I'm just here to flog the books that you should be reading on this subject. And in this case, I highly, highly recommend the correspondence between John and Abigail Adams. Um, there's, there's a lot to be learned. There's deep insight into, a, you know, an intimate marriage and, you know, home li home, both home and political life in the early United States. They're also just really fun to read, and I hope you give you a flavor of that. I have just a very small selection of their letters here. This is about a year's worth of letter correspondence between the two from 17, 1776 to 77, uh, basically the period of the Second Continental Congress they were writing here. We're going to delve into that here in just a bit. Let me uh, let me give you a taste for what she let me get a taste for what some, some of their correspondence was like. This is from 21st April 1776. So she's writing from home to John in Philadelphia, and she writes, "I have to acknowledge receipt of a very few lines dated the 12th of April. You make no mention of the whole sheets I have wrote to you, by which I judge you either never received them, or that they were so lengthy as to be troublesome, and in return." You have set me an example of being very concise. I believe I shall not take the hint, but give as I love to receive, and proceeds to write sheets and sheets of a letter. <laughs> On 50, so a few, day, a few days before that, in one of uh, John's very concise letters, he had given her instruction on the rearing of their children. He writes to her, John, speaking of John Quincy, has genius, and so has Charles. Take care that they don't go astray. Cultivate their minds, inspire their little hearts, raise their wishes. Fix their attention upon great and glorious objects. Root out every little thing. And by little, he means every worthless or despisable thing. Weed out every meanness. Make them great and manly. Teach them to scorn injustice, ingratitude, cowardice, and falsehood. Let them revere nothing but religion, morality, and liberty. And that's very consistent with John Adams' tone throughout much of his service in the early state and the early, in the last days of the colonies, first days of the United States. He was known. He was involved in everything. He was probably the most indefatigable of all of the men that we now consider our founding fathers. There was nothing he was not involved in or speaking to. 
while Washington was famous for, you know, simply being presents and just using a, you know, a, s a smile or a frown or a raised eyebrow to keep, keep order in Continental Congresses. And while Franklin, Franklin would say nothing during the proceedings and then lead backroom dealing, um, you know, in between sessions, uh, Adams was in, the, was in the midst of every debate. And he was noted for his principle, for his conviction, for his passion, for his zeal for liberty, and the fact that he never lost his temper. He managed to stay, even in the hot Philadelphia summers, he kept his cool in every proceeding. He blew off a lot of steam in his letters with Abigail. <laughs> On, uh, let me see. I wanted to, wanted to read uh, Abigail's response to his admonition. On page 41, or excuse me, Writing from Braintree on the 7th of May, 1776, so a few days, a couple weeks later, she writes, Our little ones, whom you so often recommend to my care and instruction, shall not be deficient in virtue or probity, if the precepts of a mother have their desired effect, but they would be doubly enforced, could they be indulged with the example of a father alternately before them. I often point them to their sire, engaged in a corrupted state, wrestling with vice and faction. And you see this tension. I wish we could read more selections like this. You see this tension throughout her letters all the time. Honey, I really miss you. Please come home. Honey, I'm really proud of you. Keep doing what you're doing. And her letters just flip-flop between these uh, all the way through. Going back to what I was saying about her management of their home, on the 27th of May... John writes to her again from Philadelphia. He says, I have three of your favors before me, talking about her letters, one of May 7th, another of May 9th, and the third of May 14th. The last has given me relief from many anxieties. It relates wholly to private affairs and contains such an account of wise and prudent management as makes me very happy. I begin to be jealous that our neighbors will think affairs more discreetly conducted in my absence than at any other time. Whether you're suspicious whether your suspicions concerning a letter under a marble cover are just or not, it is best to say little about it. It is a hasty and hurried thing and of no great consequence. Calculated from Meridian, a great distance from New England. So he began to fear that um, things were better run without him than with him. On the 17th of June, she wrote from Plymouth, where she had gone on a visit with her sister. Since I arrived here, I have really had a scene quite novel to me. The brig Defense, so brig was a small warship uh, uh, named Defense from Connecticut, put in here for ballast. The officers, who are all from thence and who are intimately acquainted at Dr. Lothrop's, invited his lady to come on board and bring with her as many of her friends as she could collect. They sent an invitation to our town, Mrs. Warren, and to us. The brig lay about a mile and a half from the town. The officers sent their barge, and, at, and we went. Every mark of respect and attention which was in their power they showed us. She is a fine brig, mounts 16 guns, 12 swivels, carries 120 men. 117 were on board, and no private family ever appeared under better regulation than the crew. It was as still as though there had been only half a dozen, not a profane word among them. The captain himself is an exemplary man, hardened his name, has been in sea nine engagements. Says if he gets a man who swears and finds he cannot reform him, he turns him on shore. It is free to confess that it was the sin of his youth. He has one lieutenant, a very fine fellow, Smeldon by name. We spent a very agreeable afternoon and drank tea on board. They showed us their arms, which were sent by Queen Anne, and everything on board was a curiosity to me. They gave us a mock engagement with an enemy and the manner of taking a ship. The young folks went, on, went upon the quarter deck and danced. 
Some of their jacks played very well upon the violin and German flute. The brig bears the continental colors and was fitted out by the colony of Connecticut. As we set off from the brig, they fired their guns in honor to us, a ceremony I would very readily have dispensed with. <laughs> it's interesting to see the structure of these letters. These, you, you can tell these were not all written at once. It was literally, they were literally texting each other before you know, texting was a thing. Um, there are some brief letters from John here where he says, I'm sitting in the middle of a boring committee meeting trying to concentrate and write a few letters to you and just keep myself awake. Um, this letter, so she gives this long, detailed uh, breakdown of this, of this brig, and then a few paragraphs later, she's, she says she's heard more details about it being engaged in an action, and then she actually gives a, a description of that further on, so it tells the whole story about this brig that she got to know so intimately, and then how it conducted itself in battle against British transports. She concludes her description of that by saying, I feel no great anxiety the large armament designed against us. The remarkable interpositions of heaven in our favor cannot be too gratefully acknowledged. He who fed the Israelites in the wilderness, who clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the young ravens when, when they cry, will not forsake a people engaged in so righteous a cause, for remember his loving kindness. We, want, we wanted powder, we have a supply. We wanted arms, we have been favored in that respect. We wanted hard money, $22,000 and equal value in plate are delivered into our hands. And this was encouragement that her husband was blessed to hear because unlike many, uh, many in the Continental Congress who figured, eh, six months, we'll be done with this war. Adams knew from the beginning, even as he fought strongly, more strongly than others for independence, he knew that they were in for a long, difficult haul. And Abigail writes in some of her letters of seeing the British, you know, the British fleet arriving off, you know, arriving off the coast and suddenly, you know, realizing it's just coming home about, you know, what they have undertaken. Because this was Britain at the height of her power. She was battle-hardened and experienced, her troops were battle-hardened and experienced in the Napoleonic, and the Napoleonic Wars. And they were, you know, they had run roughshod over everything that stood up to them. And this was what she was sending out her husband to resist. She ends this letter by saying, I know it will be a difficult and arduous station, but divesting myself of private interests which would lead me to be against your holding that office. I know of no person who is so well calculated to discharge the trust, or who I think would act a more conscientious part. My paper is full. I have only room to thank you for it. And then on the 14th of July, she was in Boston at the time, by yesterday's post, I received two letters dated 3rd and 4th of July. Anybody know what happened the 4th of July? Hmm. 1776. And though your letters never fail to give me pleasure, be the subject what it will, yet it was greatly heightened by the prospect of the future happiness and glory of our country. Nor am I a little gratified when I reflect that a person so nearly connected with me has had the honor of being a principal actor in laying a foundation for his future greatness. May the foundation of our new constitution be justice, truth, and righteousness. Like the wise man's house, may it be founded upon these rocks, and then neither storms nor tempests will overthrow it. I cannot but feel sorry that some of the most manly sentiments in the Declaration are expunged from the printed copy. Perhaps wise reasons induced it. She goes on, and then she, go, and, uh, she goes on to comment on a lot of things in regard to the, the brand new... Declaration of Independence, and then returns to some of the, uh, some of the discussion about home life as well. 
Um, Another favorite theme of hers that she would return to at several points, she writes about on the 14th of August. She would write, I most sincerely wish that some more liberal plan might be laid and executed for the benefit of the rising generation, and that our new constitution may be distinguished for encouraging learning and virtue. If we mean to have heroes, statesmen, and philosophers, we should have learned women. The world perhaps would laugh at me and accuse me of vanity, but you, I know, have a mind too enlarged and liberal to disregard the sentiment. If much depends as is allowed upon the early education of youth and the first principles which are instilled take the deepest root, great benefit must arise from literary accomplishments in women. Uh, this was something near and dear to heart, and it's led, into, it's led into what the modern conception of Abigail, which I'll touch on in just a minute, but I want to read John's response to that uh, before he... Um, before turning to that. On uh, 25th of August, he's still in Philadelphia, he writes, your sentiments of the importance of education in women are exactly agreeable to my own. Yet the femme savants are contemptible characters. So is that of a pedant universally. A pedant is someone who's really educated and likes to show it. He said, so is that, so he says, a pedant are contemptible characters, how, how much soever of a male he may be. In reading history, you will generally observe when you light upon a great character, whether a general, a statesman, or a philosopher, some female about him, either in the character of a mother, wife, or sister who has knowledge and ambition above the ordinary level of women, and that much of his eminence is owing to her precepts, example, or instigation in some shape or other. And he goes on to give examples of remarkable men shaped by remarkable women in history. Let's think about that for a minute. Let me read... Let me read what Abigail's most famous for having written. Um, from an, going back a little much earlier to, uh, this is from the 31st of March, 1776. I long to hear that you have declared an independency. So this would be well before the Declaration of Independence. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. I'm going to restrain myself from reading John's response to this. He calls upon General Washington to raise the army again should, this actually ha should she follow through on this. So, um, so, to the, so today, uh, this is primarily what Abigail is uh, remembered as, as not only as a first, la first lady of the United States, but also as an early feminist in the United States. And there was no doubt, she had, she had concerns for the, imp the improvement of herself, her daughters, and other women in the United States. I think it's a disservice, I think it's a disservice to call her a proto-feminist, though, because I think if you read any, because, because throughout the course of her letters, she challenged her husband, she disagreed with her husband, she encouraged him, she built him up in all things. Um, and that's what I think she should be remembered for. Uh, if it's, notable, you know, it's, notable, it's notable the points at which she takes different opinions from him. During his presidency, she was in full support of the controversial Alien and Sedition Act, which is a rabbit trail we will not go down this morning. 
Um, she was, she felt he was too, she felt his hand was too light in the, what's today known as the quasi-war with France. She believed that should have been a full-on war with the French at that period. And yet we see time and again, she says, and yet I will submit to you in what you do. So if his writing is, I think, the, some of the strongest proof of his admonition that, you know, great men are backed by great women is the example that he had in his wife. And I think that's what she'd be remembered for. And she fall, and so after that paragraph that I just read, that's usually what's quoted for her out of context. She follows it up with this paragraph and says, that your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. But such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend. And by the way, that was a, that was a personal, that's, a, you know, that's kind of a personal in-joke for them. They called each other dearest friend in most of their letters. It was kind of... It's kind of their pet name for each other. Why then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and and indignity with impunity? Men of sense in all ages abhor those customs which treat us only as the vassals of your sex. Regard us then as beings placed by providence under your protection. And in imitation of the supreme being, make use of that power only for our happiness. Amen. All right. Oh, I can't believe it. What time it is? Let me read one other quote, and then I'm going to have to stop here. i stop reading quotes. She's back in Boston again on the 29th of August. She's, um, she's visiting her aunt, and she says, I have possession of my aunt's chamber her uh, a room, which you know is a very convenient, pretty closet with a window which looks into her flower garden. In this closet are a number of bookshelves, which are but poorly furnished. However, I have a pretty little desk or cabinet here where I write all my letters and keep my papers unmolested by anyone. I do not covet my neighbor's goods, but I should like to be the owner of such conveniences. I always had a fancy for a closet with a window, which I could more particularly call my own. Here I say I've amused myself in reading and thinking of my absent friend sometimes with a mixture of pain, sometimes with pleasure, sometimes anticipating a joyful and happy meeting, whilst my heart would bound and palpitate with the pleasing idea and with the purest affection I have held. I have held you to my bosom till my whole soul is dissolved in tenderness and my pen fallen from my hand. How often do I reflect with pleasure that I hold in possession a heart equally warm with my own and full as susceptible of the tenderest impressions, and who even now, while he is reading this, feels all I describe. Forgive this reverie, this delusion, and since I am debarred real, suffer me to enjoy indulge in ideal pleasures, and tell me they are not inconsistent with the stern virtue of a senator and a patriot. I must leave my pen to recover myself and write in another strain. She opened this, she opened this letter by saying that she had spent the, the past three days entirely with you, speaking to John, even though they, they'd been, he'd been absent for months at this point. She basically pulled out all, all the letters and gone back and read through them all. And uh, she was feeling, feeling both her love for him and missing him terribly at this point. I hope you've noticed in her writing, by the way, the, uh, she would quote Shakespeare. She would quote great British authors. She would quote poets uh, extensively. I've skipped over the, a lot of those interests of time. But I hope you notice her biblical references all throughout, a lot of what we've written, not coveting, um, talking about the provi- Lord's provision for the new, new United States. I mean, this is constant. You know, all of her reading comes to the surface. Um, you know, at, as she's put, putting pen to paper. 
Um, John did much the same, though not, but uh, David McCullough in his excellent biography of Adams noted Abigail was even more diverse in her references, scriptural and literary references that would go through her letters. And this is really the point at which I, I, at which, I wish at this point I could just end this and leave you with this encouraging example of Abigail Adams and who she was and what she did. But unfortunately, there's a, there's a dark side to this story that we need to grapple with uh, this morning very briefly and as Americans. Um, does anyone know where John and Abigail Adams are buried? It's an interesting little tidbit. They are buried, uh, they're buried in a crypt below United First Parish Church in uh, Massachusetts. It's known as the Church of the Presidents because John and Abigail Adams are married there and then John Quincy Adams and his wife are buried there as well. Anyone want to take a stab? Any of you history, history historians want to take a stab at what denomination this church is? Unitarian. Unitarian? Universalist, thank you. Yeah, that's right. There, uh, I want to just read. I, uh, I went on First Parish Church's website and read their statement of faith, their covenant and their mission statement. As a free fellowship of this historic church, we unite to lift our hearts and open our minds to a larger reality, to accept support and encourage one another, to seek the wisdom in all religions, to cherish and sustain the web of life, and strive, and strive for justice, compassion, and peace. Does anybody have any idea what that means? Because I have no idea. I've read it four times now. Yes? Um, I describe them as a religion for people who don't believe in God. <laughs> yes, I would too. Their mission statement goes on. United First Parish Church, Unitarian Universalist, is a welcoming and inclusive spiritual community in the heart of Quincy. As a church of the presence, we are inspired by our democratic heritage. United by our covenant and drawing meaning from many sources, our community of all ages promotes spiritual growth, creative expression, and freedom of thought. Grounded in love and guided by compassion, we are called to raise our voices and take action for truth and justice equity and peace. If the session of Trinity Presbyterian Church ever puts that on our website, you, we need to hear about it, okay guys? So, There is something missing, isn't there? Yeah. Actually, there's a lot of stuff missing, but there's one big thing. Hmm. <laughs> Nathan, you're going right where I was thinking. I do not want to tar Mrs. Adams with this brush. Uh, she would be as horrified as any of us here listening to this. However, she does bear part of the blame. Writing to her son, John Quincy Adams, in, uh, in 1816, this would be two years before her death, she, she wrote, I acknowledge myself a Unitarian, believing that the Father alone is the supreme God and that Jesus Christ derived his being and all his powers and honors from the Father. There is not any reasoning which can convince me, contrary to my senses, that three is one and one three. Now, I hope that puts chills down your spine, because I've just talked about how instrumental this woman and her husband were to the founding of this nation. She was not alone in this belief. John shared this as well. He was, and it was, it's a, it's, honestly, the more I looked into this, the more I was surprised to find this is not, uh, the faith of many of our founding fathers is not as well understood as it should be. Uh, I, was, I read a very good, excellent, um, but fairly recent master's thesis on John Adams and his uh, Unitarianism. 
and just what exactly, and the author in that trace the history of Unitarianism as well as John's own unique take upon it. I want to be careful here because Unitarianism is not quite the same thing as Unitarian Universalism, but it was a step on the way. For many of you men who read um, Revival and Revivalism with us a few months ago for Triple B, this was hinted at, this spiritual development was hinted at, but, never, but not fully explored in that. That, that. that book was focused on evangelical Christianity, on events within evangelical Christianity here in the United States. Very broadly speaking, those churches that believed, that loved Jesus and preached his gospel, what was going on from their pulpits in the first and particularly the second great awakenings. But Murray in that referenced a few times that the spiritual state of most of New England was very, very different. While there were revivals that broke out in New York and Pennsylvania, uh, there, were, there were large swaths of it that where old, faithful Puritan churches had become Unitarian churches. Most of them were congregational in nature. They were disconnected and independent. And they had quickly, they had, by, by, by before even uh, Abigail, a, Abigail Adams was born, they had turned from, they'd gone from Puritan to, nom, to Congregationalist to, actually, sorry, they came over as Congregationalist Puritan churches in most cases. And by the time, even before she was born, they turned into Unitarian churches. Why is that? I honestly don't know. That's something we need to study more honestly, because that, that's, that devolution from Puritanism to Unitarianism, I think, is one of the two, you know, two strains of, you know, of, spirit, of spiritual life of this nation that define who we are. Because the, the, Unitarians, the Unitarians were products of the Enlightenment, far more than Reformation. They, they, rejected, uh, they rejected the miracles of Christ. They rejected supernatural happenings in the founding of the New Testament. They elevated reason and rational thought as the primary sources of truth. They drew from, you know, they drew from the best of European skepticism. Um, and, they, and, when, and as a result, they jettisoned the gospel. And the only thing that they had left was the old Puritan, was the remnants of the old Puritan piety, the old conviction, to hol- the old commitment to holiness that defined the Puritan life. They still had that, they still had that commitment to right action as they viewed it. But of course, piety, stripped of grace, becomes becomes legalism. Exactly right. And of course, so the reason I read those the reason I read those sections from uh, from United First Parish's Church's statement is not because Abigail Adams would have agreed, but because her beliefs led to that. Because this is what because this is what got passed on to the rest of the nation. Because at a certain point, Abigail still held on to some of at least the trappings of her Puritan upbringing, she and her husband both. But at a certain point, people have to wonder, if there, if there are no miracles, if Jesus isn't God, if there is no atonement, um, that's some of the saddest thing I've read this past week, and I haven't quoted here because I'm trying to get the focus on Abigail, but uh, John actually railing against the atonement and how, uh, how unbelievable that is to him. Um, You know, one of the authors I read put it really well. There, Unitarianism actually has more in common with Islam than biblical Christianity. Because while they, re, they claim to revere Jesus, they do it as a teacher, as a moralist. They, they uh, regard him for his ethical teaching more than the actual gospel. He's both. Yeah. Yeah. And so almost, it's almost just kind of a polite dismissal. They want to say, well, but he, was still, he wasn't God, but he was still a good guy. Yeah. Yes, Sarah. 
Yeah. 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 Who even? Yeah. And the transcendentalism sounds very close to what this United First Parish Church wrote. That uh, you know, we're just we're just open to everything. Yeah, Bob. Mm-hmm. And that is, there was a universalist, and Unitarian, and then a Unitarian Universalist. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned those titles. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like you at least had God but not Jesus. Right. In Unitarianism, yeah. So the universalist is, so there are no, well, so the Unitarian Universalist denomination, I guess you'd call it, it's really, I, 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 I looked into it briefly before this, I have a hard time summarizing it honestly, because they believe nothing, um, because that would be too creedal and doctrinal for them. They are simply a place of spiritual experience, where people of all faiths can come together, and I don't know if they use the word fellowship or not, so... They still like, they recognize their Unitarian Universalists have still have a little sense of their history. And so they see a connection between, they see a connection to, you know, old Puritan churches and buildings. And they're, they recognize their the influence they have being ingrained in American history. So they still build upon that. Whereas the New Age, the New Age is all about the now. <laughs> I think that's the only difference, only fun, found, that's the only significant difference I could think of. Yeah, very similar. So at the, you know, at this point, I would say, God save us. I would say, you know, uh, God save us. He He preserved our nation in those early days. We need Him to do it again. I think the more it's it's discouraging. Um, if you haven't read David McCullough's biography of John Adams, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful insight into both John and Abigail because, like I said earlier, you can't talk about one with the other. And I mean that's you know that's a positive admonition I take out of this. You know those of us who are married or those of us who are looking to be married, pray that our marriages define you know pray that our relationship with our husband or our wife define our lives as much as John and Abigail Adams did, so that you can't have one without the other. You know this was a woman this was a woman who was fully who loved her husband respected him and sent him out to do you know sent him out to do great work that he wasn't ready for before he met her. This is something I give, you know, to young men who get, you know, who are getting ready to get married. I tell them, you know, buckle up. You think your life is busy now. Wait until the Lord deems you ready for help me. And then all of a sudden life gets really crazy. Um, there's preparation, you know, a lot of the preparation, a lot of your sins will come to light. But a lot of your abilities will also find application and use when the Lord, because that's, because for most, you know, in the ordinary way of things, that's when the Lord calls men and women to truly begin work is when they get married. And that was true for John. He was kind of nothing before she came along. Um, so we have that. So we see encouraging things like that. But I think, but there's also the discouraging things when you realize that your heroes kind of failed the most important stuff. I mean, as great as an independent United States is, if you've ter- torn down the gospel on the way, it's not worth the price. I think it's beautiful. To, I think it's beautiful for us to see what 
imperfect men were able to accomplish, not even as Christians themselves, but because they lived in a nation where enough people loved Jesus and wanted to serve him. I think it's important to remember, the, you know, the, even, the, even the voting on the Declaration of Independence was anything but unanimous. This was never, you know, the war for independence was never, a, was never the whole nation coming together in an instant to fight. It was a messy, it was a messy, messy war. It was, very, it, was more, it was almost a civil war as much as the one in 1860 that we call by the name um, because there was a lot of disagreement about you know, where, we should, where, men, where men and states should fall on this issue. Um, but, it was, but it's also an evidence of that the Lord can use a dedicated minority to accomplish great things and have great influence. And so looking at, you know, so looking at it, y'all, I mean, let us be that minority. That minority is defined by nothing but loving Jesus and loving his people within the church. Because that's what, you know, that's what, set, that's what gave America what strength it needed for the great conflict. That's what shaped John and Abigail Adams. In their, in their best times, they grew out of that culture of intentional, pious Christianity. And so even when they had rejected it, the fruits of it still remained. So let's continue to build upon that fruit, but let's have the power of it. Let's not forget Jesus on the way. Um, like, like, unfortunately, one of our founding mothers did and let her children into. Um, one, there needs to be a follow-up to this. I'd love to talk. We've, we've talked it several times about her, their son, John Quincy Adams. Uh, he, was, uh, he was an equally remarkable man. Like I said, the Adams became something, something of a dynasty. Um, Charles Adams became, a, became another minister to France and historian. Um, uh, their daughters married prominent, prominent politicians in the early United States. John Quincy Adams was, uh, was part of the delegation uh, to negotiate the peace settlement with Great Britain in Paris uh, after the War for Independence, before, come, of course, coming President of the United States. John Quincy, John Quincy annoyed a lot of people because he was very preachy and belligerent in his, uh, his moral viewpoint. He pushed hard for the principles that he believed in. And that should be a be- and you know, that would be a beautiful thing if it wasn't the other side that I'm worried he was just heading into, um, I'm worried that what we see, what we really, we just seen here is the foundation of social justice, uh, social justice that defines our nation today. Where we do the right thing, not because God commanded it, but because, you know, because we're conv- convinced of it. And we turn, we turn the fruits of the gospel into the gospel itself. And what's the great evil of that, but that any, any false gospel um, has no chance of salvation. Only punishment consequences, alas. Well, I'm a few minutes early. Any other questions this morning? Was any of this new to any of y'all? I mean, I learned a lot studying through this. Okay. Yeah, Bob. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, isn't it? Because we still have God. So what they would have said, yeah. <laughs> all right? Right. And so we're still all right. We're still Christian. It's still good. Yeah. But then, when the Jesus was gone, mm-hmm. somehow the God that he supported, you know, whether you consider him a God mm-hmm. or not, Well, that's because God won't give any of his power when he's taken out of the center of things. 
Uh, yeah. Deism, possibly. I don't know. I'm skeptical of a lot. Of, I'm skeptical of a lot of the purported deism in our founding fathers. I think they were too ingrained in Christian culture to 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 seriously entertain that for long. But I know that's a common that's a common title applied to them. That's. I mean, John Adams is regularly called a deist as well. But I think if you read Adams and a lot of the other founding fathers, they clearly had. God without Jesus, as I think by the way Bob put it, is a good one. They were trying to hold on to a supreme being without Christ. And this is, you know, this is something you should always be aware of. When you start reading an author, particularly one using Christian language and imagery, like Abigail Adams, like her husband John, and you start to notice there's something missing. Where's Jesus? Where's Christ? Where's, where's that name? There is power in that name. And people who don't believe in it and what that power is, they're afraid to use it. They don't use it. Yeah, Andrew. In a couple of weeks, we'll, uh, we'll look at John Witherspoon, mm. who was the only Presbyterian to sign the Declaration of Independence. And so uh, I'll see what I dig up, but I'm hoping to dig up that he was frustrated by living in a sea of deists. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'd like to be really interested to hear your studies, whether you whether you think he's surrounded by Deus or if a lot of these men turn out to be Unitarians again. <laughs> or that. Yeah, who knows? Yes, sir. Yes, the Adams never owned a slave on principle. Many of the northern abolitionists did own slaves at many points and, uh, and profited from the slave trade in the early United States. The Adams were the exception. They did not. Uh, they, were strongly, they were strongly opposed to it. I'm not t that's an important point and one I've not touched on because that's going to come back up in some future lessons. Uh, but yeah, she was adamantly, she was adamantly against that. She was adamantly, uh, she was deeply concerned in many of her writings about how, how independence would work with the southern states, particularly Virginia, because uh, basically Virginia was the United States. It was the most powerful state you know, uh, in, the, you know, in the new union at the time. And she was concerned, like, how are we preaching liberty while, and not practicing it ourselves? It's another interesting dynamic in her relationship with Thomas Jefferson, um, who was, who owned, basically slaves did everything for him, everything except carry him from room to room. 
Um, so it's an interesting dynamic her in his relationship with the Adam, writing the Adams. All right, well, it is, 10, it is 1017. Uh, if, unless there's anything else real quick, let's pray and prepare for worship. Lord God, as we consider the wreckage of some of the New England churches we've looked at this morning, we have to, we have to mourn with David over the fall of Saul, how the mighty have fallen. And Lord God, we, look, and Lord God, we, at, we lift up ourselves to you and our nation. And ask that as you had mercy, as you provided wisdom and powder and, and hard currency in our early, and supported our fledgling nation, that you would come and you would, send, you would uh, bless us again. Lord, we need far more than physical resources right now. We need, we need Jesus. We need his spirit to come and bring us to reformation again. And Lord God, let us not, let us not lose uh, what Abigail and her husband fought for. Lord, let us honor their legacy and their work by improving upon it. And Lord, give us your spirit to accomplish that. Lord, bless us and draw our hearts to worship you even more today. In Jesus' name, amen.